This episode contains mature language and situations. Listener discretion is advised. You wake, standing on the doorstep of a beautiful mansion. The front door stands open. You can hear voices, music, so many, many people. You step towards the door. You have to know what's inside. You are lost. You have no memory of how you got here. It doesn't matter. Because now, you belong to... The Grey Rooms. I'm Jason, the creator of The Grey Rooms. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2. Down the rabbit hole we're starting to fall, listeners. I can't wait to see what horrors this season will bring. And we've had a lot of fun putting these episodes together, especially this one. It's moments like these where we look to the spirit of the holidays and we reflect on these terrors abound. We are so very thankful to be able to do this for all of you. Without the support of our listeners, and of course our patrons, we wouldn't be able to put this together. So if you could, wander on down to patreon.com forward slash the gray rooms and see if there is a tier that is right for you. Now, now to keep this short, as not to keep you from your nightmares, we'll be changing things up and thanking our patrons at the end of the episode. But for now, listeners, bundle up, settle in, and enjoy the show. opened my eyes just a slit, wincing at even the dim light in the room. I had a pounding headache. I was laid out on a couch in a room decked out in green brocade, thick carpets, and antique silver. Droplets pattered against the window panes. For a moment, I was calm, at peace. Then I remembered. My eyes snapped open in horror. The rotten egg smell. Blood in my mouth. The cat. I leapt off the couch, staggering about the room. I grasped for a side table to steady myself. Another gap in my memory. I couldn't remember how I'd gotten here. I had been in the room, after the warden had closed the outer door, the inner door had opened, and then... I told myself I was not like other men, that I was not afraid, but I stood in that dark room struggling to breathe. 
I died. I remembered it. My face was not my own. I had lived another life. It wasn't me. I was that man, John. It was all I could do to put one foot in front of the other. It was all I could do to draw breath. My eyes darted from shadow to shadow, thinking I'd see those eyes again. Those cat eyes, glowing in the darkness. I couldn't stop myself. I opened my mouth to scream. Ah, there you are. Good afternoon. The sudden burst of light startled me, and I blinked furiously, swallowing my fear. I looked towards the door, squinting. A tall, thin woman stood in the now open doorway. Her hair was hickory-colored, pulled tight into a bun atop her head. Her skin was the color of autumn leaves, and two bright eyes peered at me from behind round, rimless spectacles. She wore a dark suit, antiquarian, and my first thought was that she would have looked at home in the smoking room of a Victorian billiards club. The chain of a pocket watch was clipped to a button on her vest, trailing down to disappear beneath her coat. I'm sorry to have startled you. Are you all right? I... <clears throat> I'm fine. I've just had a very disturbing experience and I have a bit of a headache, I'm afraid. Your first room. I would imagine it would be quite distressing. She crossed the room with precise strides to stand before me. She extended a hand, and I took it. My name is Alma, Mr. Beckett. I'm an attendant here at Ash Manor. It's a pleasure to meet you in person. Her skin was warm, her handshake firm. Despite the pain, I found myself instantly liking her. She reminded me of someone, though I couldn't think who. I had to stop myself from smiling as my hand fell away. Yes, ma'am. The pleasure is all mine. Alma. Don't call me ma'am, and I won't call you sir. Yes, ma'am. Alma. I'm sure you have a number of questions, Mr. Beckett. While I can't answer all of them, I can hopefully make you a bit more comfortable with the trials before you. And I can serve you tea. I blinked. Tea? I have a lovely blend of lavender and peppermint that should help. Or Earl Grey if you'd prefer some caffeine. Tea. Tea would be nice. Thank you. Lead the way. She led me down a hallway lit with gas lamps and beautiful wood flooring. I glanced out the window to orient myself and caught a glimpse of the woods in a sudden flash of lightning. We were on the north side of the manor, for all that mattered. We stepped through the door at the end of the hall and I found myself walking through a large glass-walled conservatory. As rain pelted down outside, little songbirds flitted through the trees overhead. Torches marked the edges of a gravel path that wound its way into the darkness. Alma led the way through the grove. I could smell orange blossoms and passion flowers, vine stalkers and orchid flutes, and a dozen other plants I couldn't identify. Alma, are you a part of... I think the warden called them management. Oh my, no. I'm just on staff here. I'm new, but finding my way. 
As I said, my title is attendant. I'm here to help you acclimate. She looked over her shoulder at me, trying to give me a reassuring smile. We want you to be comfortable when you're in the manor, after all. Ah. Good. Yes. <clears throat> the warden wouldn't tell me why I'm here. He'll be no help with answers, I'm afraid. The warden can be a challenging person to talk to. One of the other attendants likes to call him Mercurial. I just think he's crazy. We left the birds and the trees behind yet another door, and the shadows of a lengthy corridor surrounded us. It was lined with portraits of all shapes and sizes. I tried not to look into their eyes, tried not to entertain the thought that they were watching us as we passed door after door. Just as in the hallway upstairs, each door seemed very out of place. A barn gate stood beside a glass pull door with a coffee cup logo etched into the front. The sliding entry to a grocery store stood mere inches from what was obviously a child's bedroom. I'm sure you've already seen how strange the manor's layout can be, Mr. Beckett. Please try not to wander without a guide. We don't want you getting into any trouble while you're under our roof. She turned toward me with another smile and pushed open a door on the left. The well-dressed attendant gestured grandly for me to precede her. I stepped out into a screened-in porch somewhere on the back of the house. Fresh air and the smell of rain were a balm on my nerves after walking the strange and twisting halls of the manor. A dim afternoon sun shone through the clouds. Part of our view was obscured by what looked like a hedge maze, one I'm quite sure I hadn't seen on my way in with Todd. A fire crackled and the stone hearth set into the porch's wall, driving away any chill. A kettle whistled merrily from a hook over the blaze. Take a seat just there, Mr. Beckett. I'll get our tea ready. She pointed to a pair of wicker chairs facing each other over a glass-topped table. Both were positioned such that we could look out onto the grounds. I settled into the one with an overstuffed blue pillow. Grateful for a moment to relax. Sitting here, smelling the rain and awaiting my tea, the death and terror of that space station seemed very far away. Go on then, ask your questions. We're never going to have as much time as we'd like to chat, but I'll tell you what I can. I raised an eyebrow. You people certainly do like your cryptic statements. All I'm looking for is some clarity. I promise you, Mr. Beckett, when I'm on duty, I'll do all that I can to make you comfortable. She came to the table carrying a tray loaded down with madelines and finger sandwiches, small bowls filled with fruits and nuts. The center of the tray was dominated by the teapot, still piping hot from the hearth. Ceramic mugs sat next to a wooden box filled with tea bags. She dropped into the chair opposite and began the ritual of arranging the bowls and plates. She gestured to the box. Anything look good? That peppermint you offered. Please. She gave me a sympathetic look as she placed a bag into one of the cups. You're still in pain? Yes. If anything, it's worse. I'll be all right. She handed me the mug, and I rested it in my lap. It was comforting, smelling the wafting aroma of the peppermint and lavender, feeling the heat of the water through the ceramic. I gazed out onto the grounds, watching the rainfall. I can try to answer a few of your questions, without the cryptic answers. 
She had gathered herself into her chair, her legs tucked up beneath her. Alma had chosen Earl Grey, and a small plate on the table beside her held a pair of finger sandwiches. She stared out towards the horizon, a pensive look on her face. She glanced in my direction. I'm afraid there are a number of things I'm not allowed to tell you. Out of respect, I'll simply tell you. No games, no obfuscation. She turned back towards the view, raising her cup to her lips. At the end of the day, you're here to make choices, Mr. Beckett. To enter the rooms, not to get answers. We'd see about that, I told myself. I took a sip of my own drink. The tea was excellent, and I could feel the peppermint oil going to work on my headache almost immediately. A stray thought told me that someone close to me, someone I cared about, used to give me peppermint tea when I had a headache. A long time ago. I grimaced, pushing it away. Not important. Not now. All right. You said I'm here to enter the rooms. Why? Management brought you here. You're to make a choice. Pick a room and enter it. I can't tell you anything more than that. All right. Where am I? Todd called it Ash Manor, but the warden used another name. The Grey Rooms. I gestured with my mug at the finery around us, reaching over to pluck some dried fruit from a bowl. Strange name. The one color I haven't seen here is gray. An old name from a simpler time. I can tell you that you're not the first person that management has brought here. The rooms have changed as well. All right. Management brought me here. Why me? What makes me a good fit for this... project? She turned to look at me for a moment. The Warden, I believe, said that you're special. Who am I to argue with the Warden? You're being cryptic again. She bobbed her head back and forth, smiling. It might be harder to avoid than I thought. A hazard for my profession, I suppose. I can't tell you that. <sighs> I took another drink of my tea, trying to stay calm. I could tell she was trying to be kind in her own way, but if management had brought others to the Grey Rooms before, none had been like me. I was sure of it. We don't have much time, Mr. Beckett. I'll have to take you to your door soon. Is there anything else I can clarify for you? Yes. What's stopping me from just walking out the door there? She set her mug in her lap. A frown crossed her lips. I could just walk out into the rain. I could pick a direction and leave you, and the warden, and this bizarre manner behind. I don't suppose I could just ask you not to do that? No. Well, you've walked around the manor a bit. What makes you think the grounds are any easier to navigate than the house? I'm willing to take my chances. She was silent, looking out across the grounds. Alma, all I want is to understand why I'm here. Perhaps if I did, I'd be willing to go along with this. I'm assuming... I paused. I shuddered. I'm assuming death waits behind every door. Correct? A grim fate? A dark end? She shot a look in my direction. Yes. We chose not to tell you up front. We hoped it would make the first door easier. You're right. You die every time. As feedback for the future, it did not make it easier. Wait, wait! The deaths are unpleasant, yes, I'll admit that. But look around you. Isn't this lovely? Once we get a few doors under your belt, we can start talking about longer stretches here in the manor. 
If you aren't willing to treat me with respect, what is any of your hospitality worth? Why should I stay a moment longer than I have to? Mr. Beckett, please sit down. Respectfully, ma'am, you can go to hell. Feeling very proud of myself, I strode towards the back door. I almost made it. As I heard the words, I felt my body seize up. She caught me mid-step, and my whole weight settled awkwardly onto my right calf. My breath caught. My chest still. I could feel my heart struggling, desperate to continue beating. I couldn't even move my eyes. My gaze was locked midway up the door. My arms stretched toward the knob. Mr. Beckett, you forget yourself. She stepped into my line of sight, ducking her head so I could see her face. The trace of a smile played about her lips. There was something about her eyes, something dark and vibrant that I hadn't seen before. Something dangerous. You're a guest here, and I'm an attendant. That means I'm here to help you, but I need you to listen to me when I give you advice. As an example, you should trust me when I say there are people here at the manor that would be much more demonstrative in correcting your behavior. She leaned in close and I felt her breath on my face. We're going to take a walk. I'm going to take you to your next choice of doors. When you return for your own sake, please, don't try something like this again. She straightened up and made a quick gesture with her hand. (gasps) Breath rushed back into my lungs as my chest began to move, but I still couldn't control my limbs. The pain in my legs was intense, and in my mind I screamed in agony. They began to move of their own accord. This way, Mr. Beckett. I tried to yell, to beg, but nothing came from my throat. She held the door open, and I stepped out into the rain. Moments out the door, I was soaked. My clothes clung to me like a second skin as she puppeted my stiff limbs. Alma led me away from the house, past the hedge maze and towards a small sitting area I hadn't seen from the porch. I saw it only out of the corner of my vision, as my head was still angled downwards. My arm was still outstretched reaching for a door I'd never touch. I saw the bottoms of marble benches, the sides of artistically tended bushes, and flat wide stones at the base of a well. Here you are, your second room. Your choice awaits you below. She leaned into my vision again. Somehow she was completely dry. Not a single raindrop slid down her face. I tried to back away, but my spine was painfully still. I'll see you again soon, I'm sure. I hope you won't hold this against me. She gestured, and I straightened. My head came up, and I realized I was less than two paces from the well. It was almost ten feet wide. And deep. You're a very interesting guest, Mr. Beckett. I'm sure we could have very fine conversations, if you learn to play your part. Another gesture. A flick of the wrist, and I was moving. One step. Two. And I was over the wall. Into the well. Falling. As soon as I was over the side, I felt my muscles relax. Mine to control once again. I held up my arms. Tried to twist my aching body, but I hit the ground. Hard.
I felt the snap. The agony of my abused limbs faded in the white-hot nova of a broken leg. I looked up, hoping I would see Alma peering over the side, but all I saw was a dim circle of gray sky. Shaking, shuddering in pain, I hauled myself to my feet. I braced myself against the wall as I tried to take in my surroundings. She hadn't been lying, at least. Two doors stood on the far wall set into the stones. Both had a rusty, industrial look to them. In the dim light, I could see a flash of brass to either side. Gritting my teeth, I hopped carefully across the small space. I was in agony by the time I neared the door. One final bounding step and I used the doorknob to steady myself. Its brass plaque read, Last Bout. I tried to turn to see the label on the other door and almost lost my balance. A wave of pain surged through me and I gave in. I turned the doorknob. I allowed my pain and anger to claim me. Gravity did the rest. I fell forward into the darkness of the gray room. The door swung shut behind me. The rain poured down, and all was silent. feel my knuckles bleed again. Hitting the sandbag like I've been doing doesn't callous the wound immediately. That takes time. I stopped using wraps and I stopped using gloves. I wanted my fists to be strong enough to hit something without a cushion and not scream at the top of my lungs in pain. I've made sure that I can improvise on the fly. Any combination is a good one here, and I need to react as fast as possible. Right jab to left upper, a left kick into a forward throw. Even my right hook alone is enough now for a knockout. I don't think I'm afraid anymore. The feeling went numb with my fists a long time ago. It's been over a year since I started training for this, and for a debut fight, I think I'm more than prepared. In a ring like this, No one knows if they're really ready. I stare into my locker, the note from Uncle George sitting there, crumpled with worn ink. I read it to myself one more time. Watch your back in there, Adam. Once you go in, it's fight or flight. And trust me, boy, flight ain't an option. It was obvious that I couldn't run away, even now. I can't quit. I'm too far in. And I don't want to quit. It's a life or death fight. But even now, I can't help but feel cocky. I've seen fighters more prepared than me go in and lose their heads in round one because they made one little mistake at the beginning of the match. And I've seen big beefy guys get eaten alive because they didn't train enough. They thought it was going to be a piece of cake. Luckily, I know better. And because I know better, I think I'm ready to do this. I take a rag and shut my locker door. It doesn't stay closed, but I'm not really worried about people stealing my stuff. I mean, what do I have to steal, 50 credits? I chuckle to myself. 
I'll be back later anyway, with more money in my pocket than before. I wipe the blood off my hands and it soaks the towel. I know I should wrap these hands of mine. The stench of blood alone makes it harder to win, but again, I'm feeling cocky. I move forward with my head held high and my shoes tied tight. The locker room is empty and stained with a mix of blood and dried shit from people too scared to leave or people who survived scared enough to ruin their shorts. From the entrance, I see paramedics rushing in with what I assume to be a corpse tied down to a gurney. I assume it's a corpse. Poor bastard is missing a chunk of his leg and half his skull is hanging out. The paramedics look extremely nervous as they pass me. One of them is clearly new to the job and doesn't want a loser waking up before they make it to the containment unit. I don't get why anyone would willingly leave a medical facility to work here. If the pay is as good as the fighters, I get it. But I've got no clue how much they make. I was never smart enough for med school, but I never really considered going to college in the first place. Seeing them almost feels like a reminder. My life can end here just like that, but I'm more than sure it's not gonna happen. I walk toward the entrance, shadow boxing, as I finally see the one man I really don't want to see right now. Tony. Hey, hey, you ready to go, slugger? His voice always sounds like he's trying to make a joke, like he could care less about anything in the world. I just nod. I don't want to get into a whole conversation with this bozo before I mop the floor with what's out there. He's holding a clipboard and a ballpoint pen, blue ink. He stinks of cigarette smoke and hooker sweat, wearing the same suit he's owned since Uncle George was in the ring. I don't know why my uncle worked with this clown, but Tony's the only one who vouched for me. I had no choice but to let him into my life. All right, just need you to sign a waiver before we get you into gear, okay? He hands me a clipboard and pen. I ignore most of the words outside of sign here and first initial here, since I know what I'm in for. They haven't changed any of the rules in 20 years. It doesn't matter what the contract really says. Fight until the bell and then you can cash in. I don't need some piece of paper telling me what's legal and what's not. I sign the document and push it back into Tony's hands. Ooh, looks like you got some fire in your belly. I'll be waiting in the stands for you after. Tony waves as he walks in the other direction. He's not concerned for my safety at all. He's seen this sort of thing a million times before. He calls back over his shoulder. Good luck. Don't fuck this up. I thank God for Tony leaving, so the only smell I'm left with is the stench of the locker room. I continue the shadow boxing I did earlier, every little combo I've trained myself to do as I finally make it to the entrance. The sounds of roaring, drunk audience fill my ears. It's a drug in of itself, and I'm glad I'm taking it. The bars blocking the arena are like a jail cell, if the jail cell had bite marks and bent steel. It's weird being on the other side of these bars for once, instead of seeing it from the stands, waiting for the gate to lift to reveal the next sap to enter the pit. The sharp sound of a microphone turning on echoes in the arena, a roar of applause and yelling fans competing with the announcers. And now, what you've all been waiting for, a real man's bout. Vinny the Machine Magnum has been an announcer since before I was even a glimmer in my old man's eye. Hearing his gruff and husky voice bring me into the fray for the first time is a weird sort of honor. The nephew of bare-knuckle bastard George Paletsky takes his first steps onto the stage of Red Bloodshed. My Uncle George's name mentioned, a loud boom of cheers erupts all around me. The audience is with me. William Buckley is a newer but much more smooth-sounding announcer who took the dive from radio shows, so it's strange to hear Cowboy Commander Dickinson hyping me up next to a legend of Magnum. That's right, Vin. Weighing in at 175 pounds, 5 foot 11 inches, the next generation of suicidal sucker punchers has found its rising star. The bars begin to rise. 
I hype myself up by clapping my cheeks and hopping in place. It's showtime. The skull crusher of New Brooklyn, the monster masher of Manhattan, the dynamic destroyer of the underground fighting elite. The bars have risen and I'm already out to the arena. My fist raised into the air as I take in my future glory. Adam Alexon! I feel the sand beneath my sneakers shift and shake with every step and every scream of the audience. They know my name now. And they're going to remember it once this place is caked in blood and I'm the only one left standing. Well, this is quite the main event, don't you think? You couldn't be more right, Vin. George Poletsky is a legend. His legacy stepping into the ring is more than a gift to the sport. It's a gift to the whole world. And it seems he's taken his uncle's lead right off the bat with no gloves on. No wraps either. That's just suicide in my book. <laughs> Vinny coughs up what I assume to be cigarette ash, as I ignore the suicide comment, since I know for a fact what I'm doing. Is it dangerous of me to do this? Sure. But the whole idea of this sport is dangerous. What's the point of playing it safe? I'm not going to get bit. I'm too quick for that. I'm not going to get knocked out. I know how to block just at the right moment. I'm not going to lose. I can punch faster than lightning now. There's no way I can lose this fight. I'm coming out on top, and nothing can stop me. The sound of the other gate lifting rings in my ears. The growls of the dead, all too familiar. And now for the first wave. Let's see if that legacy rings true. Will a legend be born right here, right now? Let's find out. With the sound of the starting bell, I propel myself forward. The undead are slow this first round, so I shouldn't waste all of my energy. First one, a simple low sweep with my right leg and a chop to the head. The second comes at me a little faster. I dodge its lunge and dig my fingers into its exposed ear. It screeches, but it's hard to tell with zombies if they still feel pain or not. I kick it in the stomach, and the head remains stuck to my fingers. The body falls to the ground. The third approaches. I throw the severed head at it like a basketball. It drops onto its back. I jump on top and wail away. Right, then left. Right, then left. My hands are drenched in cold blood. The wounds on my knuckles sizzle from the infection I'm getting. It doesn't matter. I'll power through. From behind, I hear one screech as it gets closer. Another sweep and it's on the ground too. I don't have time for this. I stomp the head until it cracks, leaking into the sand. One more left. I dash forward and check it with my shoulder. It flies forward to the wall, going limp as it hits the concrete. It's not done. One hit like that is never enough for these freaks. My hand grabs for the neck and I crush its trachea, like a bag filled with gelatin just ready to burst. The first wave is over. 45.3 seconds. An impressive display of power. Buckley's surprise is obvious, and the crowd gives me another rush of adrenaline. I strike a pose. I'm on the stage. I'm meant to perform, and it feels real good. I calm myself down and get back into a fighting stance. I know I have a minute before the next wave, but I'd rather be ready now than waste my time. Another bell, and it's on. A larger one of the dumbs walks in, beefier than the others, but also much slower. I rush around the smaller ones and pick them off. I take down two with a clothesline and pull off one of their arms for good measure. I hit one right where the sun doesn't shine with that arm, making it stagger before going in for another crack shot across the face. I keep bashing and crashing. 
leaking blood drenching the sand and painting in a dark maroon. It's like a modern art piece, and one of those inkblot tests you hear about. I see the big boy in my sights and slide beneath its open legs. It can't turn around fast enough, and I'm climbing onto its back. It reaches around to grab me, but, well, its reach isn't the best. Instead, I make it onto his shoulders and ride it piggyback. It's time to give these folks a show. Well, would you look at that, Will? Seems like we got ourselves a rodeo clown. I get some of the laughter that I'm looking for. It's quite the sound. I remember watching Uncle George play pranks or do silly stuff in his matches. I want to show my roots. I decide to end it with a rush of blows to the beast's head. And kick myself off before it falls to the ground in a puddle of its own juices. It's strange how splattered brains look on top of other splattered brains. Gross, but it's almost hypnotic. I guess it's the spoils of war, or something like that. I take a bow. My knuckles are on fire. I can bear it. They have treatments for after matches. Just a few more waves and I'll be in the clear. Another bell, another wave and another batch of fresh dead to stop. I'm back to my usual shtick of decapitating with my hands and soccer kicking their skulls through the guts of other brain munchers. The brute kind from before is now back as a pair. I make them run into each other through an obvious matador routine. Just the thing to get them to fall onto the ground. It all goes according to plan. I jump onto one of them and gouge an eye out for good measure. A small one makes it to me and almost takes a swift bite from my shoulder blade. I pop the lone eyeball I just got into its mouth and shake it like a blender. It spins in a daze before I sock one to its jawline and make its neck twist like a wet towel. This balancing is delicate, but pretty fun when you get into the heat of it. It just feels like I'm snorting coke, punch after punch, throw after thrust. It's the time of my life. Training never shows you how exciting the whole thing is when you're in the dome. It's something you have to just experience for yourself when you're right and ready. And there goes another wave. This Alexson kid's got some wicked jabs. He hasn't slowed down for a second to catch his breath. It's quite a feat. But will that help him in the end? Or send him to the med bay? I spit at the thought of losing now. How dare this washed-up radio jockey think I'm gonna just die like the rest of these wannabes. I'm Adam fucking Alexson. Nothing is gonna stop me. I shout out to the audience, asking if they want more. I don't feel any pain at this point. Just another hit of pure adrenaline as the crowd answers me. Gone. Go time. In the center of it this time is a skinny looking one that's rushing toward me immediately. Looks like he'll blow chunks any second and slow me down. I go for him first. If I keep him around to the end, it'll just make the sand slippery. I go for the legs, but a slash on my back from its claws like fingernails puts me in a state of confusion and rage. I'm just not in the mood for this lanky loser. I suplex him into the sand and kick him a few times for good measure. Another one comes up from behind me and I send a chop to his nutsack. That makes it pause before lunging at me again. Somehow I'm... I'm on the ground now. This thing's saliva just drips onto my face like a rabid animal. I push it off of me with both my legs and wipe the spit off my face. Well, that was a close call. Almost looked like it was over for our little legacy. I want to tell those two to shut up and let me work at this point. It's gone from inspiring to flat-out annoying. I'm still recovering when I get punched by a brute and bounce across the sand. There's some jeers now. These people should feel bad for me, not boo. I punch the ground and kick off my shoes. I'm going barefoot. Another punch, another knockout.
Another sweep. Another one bites its own tongue in half. Another hook to the stomach. Another body split in two. The audience is fired up again. Just how I like it. Wave over. I scream toward the sky. Well, this is a hell of a debut. We have one more wave left, and it's the big guns. Are you ready, folks? The audience shouts. They know what's coming. The gong sounds, and it's Enter the Dragon. One combatant. A mass of sewn-together parts from past entrance. Old victims and corpses missing from their graves. A pulsating pile of mush that walks on hands and feet and whatever it considers a limb. I almost laugh when I first see it, but the laughter ends when its inhuman scream pierces my eardrums. I run toward it, trying to match its scream with my own. I start pounding it like it killed my mother. Its many mouths impossible to count. It's fine. This is this is fine. I'll be fine so long as... Oh, and there goes an arm! This is where my high ends and every little bit of pain I ignored starts rushing to me. I'm on the ground. I'm on the fucking ground and I can't move from the unending feeling of agony that's crushing me. I... I can't see now. Why can't I see? Jesus H. Christ. His eyes, Vinny. Look at him. George would be ashamed. Well, there goes another one. Sad to see a story like this end so soon. Is this how it ends? Is my career really over? Fucking hell no! No! My legs... maybe can... There's nothing there. I try to remember how to move, but there's nothing left. I feel myself coughing up my own innards. I feel the weight of a thousand pounds just pushing it all out of me. I can't hear Vinny or Will anymore. I, I can't hear the cheers. I'm trapped in this soundless dark. And my last thoughts are that maybe, just maybe, I should have worn gloves. Last Bout, written by Jordan Bond, with performances by David Steele as Adam, Michael Rigg as Tony, David Cummings as Vinny, and Graham Ruitt as Buckley. The New Attendant was written by Michael Zenke, featuring performances by Eddie Cooper as Beckett and Chantal Jean-Pierre as Alma. Musical composition was by J.M. Scherf. Episode artwork, web development, and creative direction was by Cassie Pertit. Social media and Patreon management is by Brooks Bigley. Videography is by Hale Scherf. And audio engineering and sound design is by me. Jason Wilson. Well, another episode of The Grey Rooms is in the books. And uh, this one was definitely a knockout. <laughs> you see what, see what I did there? That's, that was pretty nice, wasn't it? <clears throat> anyways, anyways, anyways. Yes, the second installment of now our new weekly release. What do you think? I'm pretty excited. And... We really could not do this without all of you and would like to take the time to thank our patrons once again and to any of those who have taken the time to leave us a five-star rating and review. Those reviews keep us at the top of the charts and makes it easy for more tortured souls to find the show. Those patrons that we love so dearly are as follows. Aaron Anthony, Amy Nikolai, Arthur Unk, Cyanide Euphoria Studios, 
Diver Ellie, Ellie Dowell, Emily Cullen, Haley's Vomit, Jackobot Snows, Jason Porras, Jessica Finch, Kelly Bear, Laura Lupinetti, Lynn Browning, Lizzie B, Megan Pruitt, Michael Velez, Michael Philick BG, Page 3.14, Patrick Stewart, Sean Gary, Stacy Thewis, Talicia Gallman, and the original Nick Show. The Grey Rooms is also streaming for free on Spotify. So just get the Spotify app or open the browser and search the Grey Rooms. You could find out more by joining us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And we took your advice and extended an olive branch to all the tortured souls who have passed through the rooms. Our emotional support group is always looking to help you with all of your needs. <laughs> yes, emotional support group and needs novel. And let's not forget our Discord channel. Bob, Todd, and many more of those that have been and are in the rooms are there to enjoy your company and to interact with you, including the warden and myself. So feel free to jump on in there and join us anytime you'd like. Once again, we truly hope that you enjoy this new format. It's a bit of a challenge, but to tell you what, it's a whole lot of fun. We've been enjoying it nonstop. So we're gonna go ahead and get back to work and get on to next week's episode. Until then, we'll see you next week.